Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello there, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, where each week we speak about a football topic, wearing glasses that are somehow simultaneously tactics tinted and numbers tinted as well. I'm Ali Maxwell. Now the word bonanza has two meanings. Primary meaning, a situation which creates a sudden increase in wealth, good fortune or profits. Secondary meaning, a large amount of something desirable. And it's that second one that provides the bedrock for this week's episode. Because over the last two weekends, we've experienced a Manchester City and Liverpool bonanza, enjoying a large amount of something desirable. Two games between two great teams, and I've got two great guys to speak about it. Michael Cox and Mark Carey from The Athletic. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Have you enjoyed the bonanza? I have enjoyed the bonanza. I must say, sometimes when you get these series of games between two top sides, three or four games in, you're thinking, God, these teams have worked each other out. There's nothing much happening here. But uh, that is not the case here. I think they've been really fun. The games have had slightly different feel about them. Um, and I've got a suspicion we might get another game between these two sides before the end of the season as well. Well, I've got a suspicion that Mark Carey might have enjoyed the last few weekends too. Good results for the side that you support, Liverpool. Yeah, with my Liverpool hat on, it was it was fantastic. Especially that first half of the semi-final. It was just chaos in, in the best way possible. And I'm sure we'll sort of unpack exactly what happened and how it happened. Well, we'll get a lot of analysis from your head and some from your heart as well over the course of, of this episode. At 2-2 in the league, of course, 3-2 to Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley. And let's start with that game on Saturday Michael, Liverpool raced into an early two-goal lead, uh, header from a set-piece, Robertson cross, Konate header, uh, then Mane at the double. We'll get into the details of those goals forthwith. Uh, extended to 3-0 up just before half-time, City getting two goals back in the second half in vain. Before we talk about the tactical battle and how the game played out, it- it's fair to say that before a ball was even kicked, some of the selection decisions here that had been made were always going to have a big impact on things. Yeah, I think a crucial factor in the FA Cup semi-final result was the balls coming out of the hat for the Champions League quarterfinals because Liverpool got the easier draw, I think it's fair to say, against Benfica um, and therefore could afford to rest uh, players for the second leg, whereas City against Atleti um, had to really play their their full strength eleven. So I think that was a factor. But of course, you have to give Klopp credit, one, for being brave enough to rest pretty much all his key players for that second leg, still against a good side in Benfica, who caused a couple of problems at Anfield. And secondly, I think for for really exploiting the fact his players were going to be fresher. I mean, it was, I thought, a much more proactive, much more intense, energetic pressing performance in the semi-final than we saw the week before in the league game. And I think he probably, that was a conscious decision. Look, City are going to be a bit knackered. Let's really go for this. And I mean, the goal itself, the, the, set, the second goal, the first scored by Mane, is obviously the most 
you know, comically exaggerated um, example of pressing we'll ever see. But even before that, there'd been a lot of examples of where Liverpool had really boxed in City into the corners or, or caused um, Stefan problems when he was uh, on the ball. So, yeah, I think that goal was a, a, an obvious response, or sorry, an obvious consequence of the way Liverpool were trying to play. So they'd had more consistency in selection across the two games against City. Still three changes from the league game for Liverpool. Uh, Luis Diaz came in for Jota. Mane played through the middle. Diaz off the left. Naby Keita came in for Henderson and Konate for Matip. But of course, City had made five changes. Uh, Tactically, despite the consistency in selection, we saw two very different Liverpool approaches and strategies, Michael, which is interesting. Talk me through the variations in their approach. Yeah, I thought in the league game they were much more patient than usual. I thought they were trying to find players between the lines. They were trying to almost hold on to possession and at times almost calm the tempo of the game, which I really don't uh, associate with Klopp's sides against uh, Guardiola, whether that's been Liverpool in in Germany with uh, Dortmund against Bayern. Um, so yeah, in that league game, I almost thought the sides had slightly different... It was almost like they took on each other's... Uh, kind of act. I thought City actually were were very direct with lots of long balls and playing quite directly. But yeah, this was the semi final was back to almost old school Klopp, mm-hmm. old school Liverpool um, in terms of the intensity and the press. And I think when you go back to the first few games between Klopp's Liverpool and Guardiola's City, you had this quite obvious pattern that Liverpool would start the game really, really fast and often score a couple of goals and City would gradually get into it before half-time. And then you'd have almost a more extreme pattern in the second half where there'd be another wave of energy at the start of the second half and then towards the end, Liverpool were really hanging on. I think there was a 4-3 between them. Mm. Uh, Must have been 2017, 2018. Um, And this game, I thought, fit a very similar pattern to that. Do you think that was always how Jurgen Klopp was planning on approaching this fixture at Wembley or might it have been a case of seeing Zach Steffen selected in goal for Manchester City rather than Edison and changing the intensity of the press from the from the front three especially based on that well I must say I do have some reservations about Stefan. I mean, I was on the Totally Football podcast last week and said that it quite annoyed me last year when Guardiola used Stefan in the semi-final against Chelsea because I thought he was really caught out for one of the goals. I think it's a Ziyech goal. Mm. I actually think he's quite good with the ball at his feet in general, Stefan. I mean, he's, he's not Edison, but I think his, his passing out towards the flanks is very good. And it was, I would say, a relatively rare error um, in possession. So I'm not necessarily sure whether his, uh, his selection really meant Liverpool went for it. I think it was more about fitness and more about the the overall game plan, what they wanted to do. They were going to press high. And I think uh, Stefan was a victim of that rather than the reason for mm-hmm. why they tried to play that way. Yeah, he is a good good player on the ball. I think that he was just maybe the the occasion maybe caught up with him a little bit as well. But even if there's a slight drop off in quality, then I think Liverpool would obviously look to exploit it. And I watched back the sort of the early stages of the the game and they were just pinning back Manchester City and they forced Man City to go long. And I don't know whether they did just lack a little bit of trust in Stefan because there were times where, granted, sometimes Mane was blocking off even the passing lane back to Stefan, but they were going long. 
and maybe there were occasions as well where City wouldn't maybe trust Stefan to to knock out of his feet and then drill a ball um, even to the to the fullbacks or switch sides or anything like that. So I wonder how much there is just just a difference in the cohesion of the team as much as maybe trust. Just to know that this is someone that we're not we haven't played with week in week out. Obviously in a competitive game aside mm. from training, that there's just slight little shifts in dynamic that that sort of level even the slight bit of difference can can actually be fatal, which again, as, as that Stefan mistake proved. Well, I mean, clearly the, the, the first touch and the second touch were, were had disastrous consequences. It's a bizarre few seconds before the pass is played back to him because, uh, as you say, Mark, that the Liverpool front three are clearly cutting off the passing lanes, daring the ball to be played back. It feels like, is it Stones that plays the pass back? Mm. It feels like Stones is... V- is sort of understanding that he's about to play the ball back into a trap. Stefan, oh, he's made a mess! And Liverpool have got another! Zach Stefan, Manchester City's backup keeper, with an horrific error! But also understands that in general that is what he would be expected to do. There's this kind of strange snapshot where everything sort of stands still for a few seconds. And it's like a crazy foreshadowing for what's to come. Uh, the, the greatest foreshadowing, Michael, and how bizarre is this, by the way, that one week before, one of the most bizarre moments of the season was Edison, the coolest man in town, playing the ball off his goal line, seemingly taking longer than any normal player would to pass that ball or get rid of it, with Jota bearing down on him. And here we were a week later in an identical situation. Yeah, I mean, there's an obvious similarity. But specifically, I think the interesting similarity is the fact that when Edison realised he got into trouble, he didn't just scramble it away. He still kind of looked up and was almost in control and played the pass. And it's almost that same thing which cost Stefan in the sense that he sensed there was a danger and he did have an opportunity to kind of just scuff it away but still went for the kind of oh I'm in control of the situation and of of course he wasn't I mean a slightly different uh, topic here but whilst we're talking about this I think the really interesting thing about the Stefan mistake was if you rewind two minutes beforehand you see where this situation came from and it didn't come from it wasn't that Liverpool had an attack the ball went out for a goal kick and City try and play forward again. It was City had the ball almost on Liverpool's, on the edge of Liverpool's area, on the edge of their own final third. And Liverpool actually pressed them really aggressively, almost pushing them back. It was actually Salah who closed down, I think, Bernardo Silva and then uh, Nathan Ake and really just aggressively pushed them up the pitch. And then City had about a minute or 90 seconds of trying to work the ball forward through the press again. So I think Liverpool deserve a lot of credit because I think in some situations, teams would kind of say, well, we've, we've done our job here. We've we've pushed City back out of our third of the pitch towards the halfway line that's our job done, let's keep a settled shape. But they pushed them all the way back and then, of course, ended up winning the ball one yard, you know, for a a chance or a shot, if you can even call it a shot, from one yard out. So that is really a great demonstration of what pressing is all about. And was the decision by Klopp to to go for it to quite such an extent a risky strategy? We've seen the reward in front of our eyes, particularly that second goal. But given variables like the hot weather... And the pitch at Wembley, which is always described as energy sapping, uh, that feels like an occasion where you might go the the other way and say, actually, it might be best not to go for it so early on. Yeah, I think that's a good point, particularly about the weather. Probably not many of these games will be played in that kind of 
temperature, both because of the time of the year, because it was a, a mid-afternoon kickoff, which was quite unusual in itself. And yeah, there's obvious risks in terms of City can play through you. A couple of times they did, actually. I thought Stefan a couple of times played into, uh, was it Fernandinho was playing in Hodgman Field? And City built moves through the team. The one thing I think you do lose with Edison more than anything is he can accurately hit the ball 70 yards downfield. You know, those long balls that we were talking about that they played the previous week. I mean, Stefan could hoof it, but he's not as accurate as Edison. I've never seen anyone as accurate as Edison over that distance. So, yeah, there was a a risk, uh, but I guess it was a calculated risk and certainly paid off. Yeah, I must say as well, I thought that it would be more advantage to City because of the, the, well, as you say, the weather's an interesting one, but the slightly bigger Wembley pitch where, you know, margins count for a lot, where if you if you are Liverpool and you're pressing, the, I think that's one of their sort of things that they, they say as, as in terms of their intensity yeah. that go that extra yard and the yard can be a difference in terms of making that, that press and getting tight to your man or, or maybe just missing it. And I thought that it would be a bit more advantage to, to City that they could maybe play around Liverpool's press just that bit more because they can open up the pitch just slightly. The fact that obviously Wembley is a little bit bigger in its dimensions, but Liverpool from the beginning, again, I watched the watched the early stages back and from the beginning, were just so, so tight and just cornering um, Manchester City so they couldn't get out. Um, despite obviously City trying to do the same to them. So it kind of went against what I thought it would be in terms of spaces yeah. opening up. It was actually Liverpool closing those spaces really well. It's interesting that you use the word extra yards there. It is literally four extra yards, the Wembley pitch, hmm. in, in length, uh, I believe. And it's quite difficult to find out the exact measurements of, of pitches, but I believe that Anfield's 110.5 yards long, uh, Wembley uh, around 115 yards and, and similar width and the Etihad same in dimensions as as Wembley or very very similar so uh, interesting stuff I mean look the, the the set piece goal after eight minutes clearly changes the whole look and feel of the game and, and changes how the managers are approaching things tactically Michael so eight minutes isn't a long time to pick up patterns was there anything apart from Liverpool's clear intent to press from the front in those first eight minutes that that suggested City might have been trying something different or how they were approaching things? I, I couldn't really see anything in those eight minutes, I must be honest. I think City tend to play their way gradually into mm. games, tend to hold possession and be quite patient. So, yeah, I think it was quite difficult to tell, to be honest. City were, yeah, pretty much the same as they, they always were. They were if you look back at it, they were pressing from the front really well in numbers as well. That you could see their their front three really going for it when Liverpool tried to either play out from a goal kick or play out from the back themselves. But Liverpool played through it really, really well, as as often they do. But often you sort of associate that more with with City playing out from the back. And I think I'm sure we'll come on to it. But Thiago especially and Fabinho really well making angles and sort of getting out of passing lanes that City were trying to block Liverpool playing out from the back really really well especially in those early stages which then I guess it's not something you can quantify in the data but that confidence early on to think you know we've got them here we've got a bit of early momentum then kind of just feeds into the rest of the game I think I suppose, Michael, that the the league game, the two-all draw because of its ebbs and flows was perhaps a little more illuminating tactically or rather for longer periods. Just just remind me of the key themes tactically from that 2-2 game. Well, I thought both sides were very aggressive and played, you know, extremely high defensive lines. And I thought that the most interesting thing for me was the roles of the fullbacks, because I think when both teams are playing high defensive lines, the fullbacks almost become the most threatening players because it's so much easier for them to overlap. There's just not as much space they have to go into before they're not just in a kind of crossing position, but they're actually going in behind the opposition defence. And, I mean, you're making a run from a great position. 
you know, you can see the entire, you can you can turn in field and see the entire picture of the game and really time your runs by getting up to speed and going in behind the defensive lines. So yeah, I thought um, Alexander-Arnold was really threatening. I mean, there was one point where Alisson just played a long ball and Alexander-Arnold was chasing it like a number nine. City played a kind of similar move. Jao Cancelo got the ball in the inside left position, cut inside and shoot. And I didn't realise this until the game, but the player who's had the most shots for City in the Premier League this is Nijal Cancelo. Really? That's which ludicrous. is absolutely mad. I know it relies a little bit on rotation with the players ahead, but that is crazy. I mean, I, I just really enjoyed the game for that. The fullbacks were so involved, not just as crosses, but as actual direct goal threats themselves. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting, really, really fun game, that one. And is there anything in the fact of a game being a cup semi-final, a single knockout game versus a huge league game where there are still league games to come. Are there any key differences, Michael, in general, not specifically to this, in general, as to how those sorts of fixtures play out? I'm never sure about this question, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, I I never know. I, I think that... This is your kryptonite. I know, found there's it. always There's always a different feeling around the game. And of course, there were big differences in terms of the tactics of these two games. I tend to think that cup ties are a little bit more fast and frantic. But I wonder whether that's true or whether that's just, we kind of go into the game with the perception. Mm. I mean, one thing that is true is that if you're losing a cup tie, you might as well just go for it. Because if you lose, you lose. It doesn't matter whether it's 2-0 or 3-0 or 4-0. There's always an element in a league football of you don't want your goal difference to be, take a massive hit. But is it different from the outset? I'm, I don't know. Mm. I say this as well, like knowing that Manchester City have won nearly every domestic cup in the past few seasons. So it's not for me to to obviously dig them out. But I think where games are become kind of chaotic, if we're going back to maybe the Liverpool City example, where games are more chaotic, I think that's when Liverpool, because of their, they are far more controlled in recent seasons under the Klopp era. But where there is more chaos, they do embrace that. And that's sort of part of their their style and their intensity and things. But if if things go a little bit against City, I think they can almost crumble quite quickly more within a within a cup game. I don't know if there's nothing really to, to back that up especially, but it just kind of has that feel to it. Whereas Liverpool are more at times, especially under Klopp early on, they were sort of seen as more of a a cup team in terms of the advantage mm. they had of just embracing that chaos, especially obviously in Europe. Um, so yeah, going back to the City Liverpool example, it sort of seemed to play out that the minute it wasn't under City's control, it seemed to just kind of crumble, especially in that first half. Mm. Well, you're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and in part two, more City and Liverpool team analysis. We're going to delve into the similarities and differences between these two top sides. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Michael, one Guardiola selection decision 
that was the same across both games was Gabriel Jesus playing off the right, uh, very much not Riyad Mahrez playing off the right, which we've seen a lot this season as well, and Raheem Sterling through the middle as the as the nine. Uh, what's his thinking there in terms of this matchup against Liverpool? And over the two games, it looked like a, a good strategy to you, one that we might see if they play again later on in the campaign. Yeah, certainly a good strategy in the uh, in the first game when Jesus mm. scored by going in behind. I think that was this, kind of the second phase of a set piece in fairness. But yeah, I, I guess that's what Guardiola did want. I mean, I would say that the left-back position is City's biggest weakness defensively. I don't think either João Cancelo or Alexander Zinchenko are natural defenders, really. I think both can switch off and I think there's often space to exploit there. It is interesting because Mahrez is obviously a very effective attacker, a very direct attacker. And if you're not comfortable one-on-one, then you don't want to be facing him. Whereas Jesus obviously gives you more running in behind the defence. So I wonder whether Guardiola looked at the high defensive line and thought, we want two players who can run in behind here. Obviously, one is Sterling and the other is Jesus. Um, so I assume that's his thinking. But yeah, it's an interesting one because Mahrez at times has been excellent in uh, in recent weeks. Mm. So I was a little bit surprised to see him omitted from... Both games, but yeah, I really get the idea. And I suppose after Jesus scored in the first game, was uh, was likely to keep his place in the second one. I suppose across the two games, you've got, uh, this is my outcome bias playing a role here, but you've got Jesus' goal. You've got Sterling's miss early on in the first game. Ball across from Jesus, I believe. You've got uh, Jesus' missed one-on-one in the second game, different scenario, but Jesus running in behind, right? Which Mahrez does less naturally. And I think uh, Sterling's running in behind for the disallowed goal as well in, in the league game as well. So plenty of, of good outcomes from that approach, uh, I guess. Also, I was surprised in the first leg, uh, pleasantly surprised that Gabriel Jesus seemed so up for a, a, a bit of a physical battle with Robertson. And there were quite a few occasions where I thought he came out of it pretty well, either winning aerial duels. Uh, at one point, he basically leapt above Robertson and just chested the ball down over the top of him, which, uh, you know, I, I think of Robertson as a, about as tenacious a defender as it, as they come. So I was I was surprised and I guess impressed with Jesus uh, in that performance in the first leg. Mark, in, in terms of Liverpool and Klopp's selections decisions, it kind of strikes me that, that Klopp's got some really interesting uh, choices to make, particularly in Champions League games, if this is the Champions League final. Um, let's start in midfield. Cater versus Henderson. Both have got quite a lot of game time. Both... Uh, fulfilling a, a you know a role on the right side of the midfield three that involves a lot of combination play out wide. What do you make of, of Cater versus Henderson? Yeah, well, I think in terms of the the decisions, in terms of that rotation, I think as much as anything, it's it's obviously good planning to to rotate, given that they've been fighting on so many fronts this season, Liverpool. So Klopp clearly trusts his squad, and I think that as much as anything on an individual basis, it just shows that they've largely been clear of too many injuries which obviously wasn't the case last season so it's allowed him to you know he's been afforded that luxury to be able to to make those specific changes whether that's when within cup games or league games um in terms of Cater versus Henderson I think that I mean Henderson rotates so well down that right hand side with Trent Alexander-Arnold and Mohamed Salah and a lot of the the good things that they do in terms of the dynamic is is a consequence I think of the way that Henderson opens up space he has a lot of unselfish off-ball running. He can obviously cover Trent Alexander-Arnold when he gets forward as well and kind of plug in a little bit. He picks up second balls really well and, and knockdowns really well. All the things that actually aren't 
from my perspective necessarily sort of quantifiable in the data really really useful to the team dynamic to allow obviously Trent and Salah to do their thing on that that right hand side he can dictate the tempo a little bit more mm. as a sort of a, a metronome really supportive in in keeping things ticking over whereas I think Cater is more of a central ball carrier really sort of aggressive runner on and off the ball but he likes to commit you know midfielders or opponents and sort of break lines with his his running yeah. which he obviously does really well and then opens up space in a different way for the forward line or obviously the the wide players as well so I think they they offer different things and as you say it depends on the the context of the opponent and and of course the competition but Cato yeah picks up positions a little bit higher a little bit more centrally up, up the field and really kind of looks to go for the penalty area quite quickly um, far more direct and full of energy and it's really good to see actually as well because everyone was sort of doubting whether he was you know good enough signing all that or from a couple of years ago and he just does need and did need a run of games and a run where he just was injury free where he's able to sort of not think twice about the actions that he makes as well so as an aside as well it's good to see Cater actually get more minutes and show that he's he's capable of doing what he can do I, I might be wrong here but I think Cater was a bit of a poster boy for some of the early yes. analytics, uh, analytics tweeters, right? I remember Ted Knutson of, of Statsbomb was a big fan of him back in the day where we used to get uh, a, a few more juicy nuggets out of Ted than we do these days. Um, so it's nice to see him um, coming good, I suppose. Uh, what about Konate against Matip in the right centre-back role? Just looking at the appearances they've made this season, it appears that Konate is the Champions League and Cup centre-back and Matip the league centre-back. Why do you think that is? What do they each bring? It is, again, such a luxury to be able to rotate those two, especially mm. Virgil van Dijk is pretty much a mainstay, as we know, to rotate them without that real drop-off in quality, which I think is obviously key. And it's it's also worth noting, similar to Cater, how much Matip has been available this season as well. He hasn't, I think this is the most he's been available as a percentage of the games since, his, you know, since he came to Liverpool, which is really, really key as well. So he's been afforded that luxury, again, Jurgen Klopp, but... Canate's he's really grown into the role. I think. I think he's still got the the odd mistake in him in terms of his you know his profile. There was that, although it didn't prove costly in the end. That one against Benfica mm -hmm. in the Champions League. But obviously, I think he's only twenty two, still young, but a real net positive ultimately. Um, in terms of both of them, I think they're both very good one v one defenders, and the, the numbers back that up. Um, on the ground and certainly in the air, as we've seen from an attacking perspective as well as a defensive one. Um, especially Kanate, who scored three in three, isn't yeah. it? Um, which is striker form, which is fantastic. Um, he, I mean, he I literally he he basically dunked on Nathan Ake. He did, absolutely did. He's so dominant in the air, and he's he's really well built, especially for his age. Really strong and imposing. I think he, I think it was in the Benfica game, or maybe it was the City game. He just sat one of the forwards just on the sidelines and just said like, "Get off me," which was. So good. And uh, one of the key differences, I think, is maybe on the ball a little bit. Kanate is a little bit more safe on the ball, which is, which is absolutely fine. I think we've we've seen just how, I guess, adventurous Matip is in really breaking those lines when he's on the ball, whether he's carrying it out through the middle. Sometimes he ends up being right in those advanced areas. I think it was the Leeds game, maybe, where he scored and ended up getting a sort of a one-two, I think, with uh, with Mohamed Salah. So he, he advances really well carrying the ball, Matip, or sometimes playing those real decisive balls into the midfield or sometimes the false nine as well. Whereas Kanate, 
is pretty good at making those line breaking passes can do it sometimes but is a little bit more conservative and doesn't maybe um, carry the ball quite as much but as I say to be afforded that luxury that there's not a real drop off in quality on and off the ball between the two to whoever is that that player alongside Virgil van Dijk is a real um, luxury and then if you were to even think about it further down if either of them were to be injured you do then bring Joe Gomez into the equation as well who granted hasn't had as much match fitness but Again, that's a real luxury. Talking about Gomez as someone who was, who was key to the Liverpool winning the title as well a couple of seasons ago. So plenty of strength in depth. In Premier League terms, his minutes have been few and far between, haven't they? And the, the starts he has had have been as the Trent replacement. So yeah. that's it'd be interesting to see that, you know, that for me makes me interested in Gomez's next few years and how much he may or may not have a future at the heart of Liverpool's defence, how much he may or may not fancy... Re- being retrained and, and trying his best to be a, a sort of Trent Light with clearly incredible defensive skill set as well or whether he, he may um, you know as Liverpool continue we expect to improve and remain at the at the top of the game whether he might be sort of collateral damage in that despite having been such mm. a big part of previous success something to watch out for uh, just on the, the FA Cup game Michael City did come would we go as far as to say they came roaring back? I mean, they, they got two goals back, having been 3-0 down at half-time. What were the main features of that second half for you? Anything tactical about the way that they um, decided to, to, to get back into this game that might apply to a Champions League final, if they might be behind at some point in that game? I don't think so, really. I, I tend to think that Liverpool dropped off, knowing that they've got bigger tests to come. I think they were very confident that they'd pretty much won the game in the first half. I know that they were hanging on a little bit late on. Um, I mean, maybe the interesting thing was that City only made one sub, Mahrez on for Jesus, um, having made a lot of changes and, you know, had some good players on the bench. I don't know where they all fit, but De Bruyne was on the bench. Gundogan was on the bench. Rodri, if they wanted some extra control in midfield. Um, Guardiola is interesting with his subs. I think last year he made fewer subs than anyone else in the league. Um, they won the league, so clearly it wasn't a massive issue. Mark, something that I noticed after the league game, the 2-2, was that when Opta analysts tweeted out the XG timeline, uh, it ended up 1.2 versus 1.22, a very similar destination in terms of cumulative uh, expected goals. But the journey in terms of shots in that game and generally between these two teams is very different. City had nine shots in that game, which aggregated to that 1.2 expected goals. Liverpool had just six shots Mm -hmm. uh, against City in in that game, actually, and in the same, in the reverse fixture in the Premier League as well, which is a massive drop-off, as you'd imagine, against someone of City's quality. But their average for the season is 18.5 shots per game, which is the highest in the league. So it's a real significant reduction, which, again, makes sense. But, you know... Given the, the quality that City have, they rarely give a shot away anyway. So you need to make sure that those chances are of higher quality. And that's what Liverpool obviously did. And I think there was a few occasions, maybe a couple with Henderson, where there was an opportunity to shoot where it just kind of sat for him as a loose ball. And he did still bring it down and recycle it and work it into a better area, which, you know, maybe it was a just off the cuff or it was a tactical thing to be like, no, only work it into high quality shots. But I looked at Liverpool's XG per shot for that game. Um, so that's measuring the average quality of a given shot mm-hmm. and it was 0.2. So essentially the average chance of their shots was going to be a sort of a 20% chance of it going in, which was really high and far above their average XG per shot for the season, which was about 0.13. So a 13% chance of a, of an average shot going in. So there was a massive difference in the, the shot quality 
on the day compared to the, that shot quality and mm. obviously a key task to work into better areas. Interesting. Uh, again, I'm just looking at the, the, the slightly cruder numbers on the opt analyst site that from open play in the Premier League, 421 shots Liverpool have taken, 417 City. So nothing between them there. Um, but in terms of expected goals, 54.7 for Liverpool, 47.6 for City and a 12 goal discrepancy uh, in their output from open play this season. So something that Liverpool have absolutely nailed this season for sure. I mean, the, the numbers behind this rivalry are incredible. Perhaps none more so than than league points accrued. Uh, I think that if City win uh, their match on Wednesday night, there'll be one point separating the two teams in terms of uh, Premier League points return since the, the start of the 18-19 season. So that's what basically three and three quarter uh, seasons, which is incredible and fantastic. And in terms of style of, of play and strategy, the way they look to do things, both teams have some similarities, of course, like like all top teams, but uh, a few nice sort of fingerprints that are specific to each team. Uh, I wonder which you think are, are most interesting. There's a couple that, that we found really interesting for a piece um, I did recently with the, the help of John Muller and uh, Maram Al-Bahana. Um, and it was a really fun piece to do, actually. This was before the, the first of the, the two most recent games. And I think... One of them that, that I found really interesting is the, the sort of the attacking build-up versus the, the chance creation and the location of those um, between the two sides. So Liverpool have got a real dominance towards that right-hand side, which we spoke about before with Trent Alexander-Arnold, Henderson helping out and of course Salah. So when you look at the attacking touches in that half, it's, got, it's more geared towards the right-hand side. And that's also mirrored in the location of where their chance creations come from. So a larger share on that, that right-hand side. But I think what's interesting about Manchester City is that they are... And I think, Michael, you've done a piece on this, I think, for the City against um, United game, you know, going back some time, that with, with City, they're more likely to build their attack down the left-hand side. So they've got a larger share of attacking touches towards the, the left-hand side with that combination between Cancelo, the, whoever the left winger is, often Sterling or Grealish, and whoever their free eight is, so often Gundogan or Bernardo Silva. More touches down that that left-hand side, but they often switch it and a lot of the chance creation is actually coming from more central areas or or more so towards the right-hand side, which is a definite tactic that they look to sort of create overloads or shift the the opposition to maybe their left-hand side before a a quick switch where there's more space on the right-hand side, which I thought was really interesting in terms of the contrast between the two. Another sort of interesting fingerprint between the two is, is their approach in transition. So that period when they've just lost the ball or um, just won the ball and we looked at the share of possession the times when they regain possession that occur within eight seconds so how quickly they look to to win the ball back and they're very similar in terms of their pressing intensity of winning the ball back within that period of time but what's interesting I thought was that their approach immediately after winning the ball back so Liverpool are the most likely in the league to actually then take a shot within 10 seconds of winning it back Whereas Manchester City are amongst the lowest in the league to do that, which again, I think passes the eye test mm-hmm. in that City are more likely to recycle possession and try and you know break down the opposition from a position of, uh, of control, whereas Liverpool just embrace the chaos. And as I say, it passes the eye test, but it's, it's definitely backed up by the numbers as well. And, and all of that, Michael, comes together and, and shows in, in how they win games as well and, and how the games that they win look in the Premier League. Liverpool, as Mark said, embracing chaos, thriving within it. City, control has to be the key word, right? Yeah, I think the games last week, uh, last midweek, the Champions League second legs summed that up pretty well. If you told me that one side was going to get a two-all 
draw, end-to-end thriller. Um, and, and one was going to get a nil-nil, I'd be fairly confident in saying that Liverpool would be the two-all and City would be the nil-nil. In the last part, we're going to be asking, is this the best rivalry in the world now or potentially ever? That's part three <laughs> of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Stick with us. <laughs> As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's probably been one of the poorer last two Manchester United games we've watched. But the last 10 minutes have been dramatic, if nothing else, and goodness me... What a moment for penalty taker and goalkeeper. This for three points. This to beat fierce rivals. This to go top of the Premiership tonight. The responsibility rests with Ruud van Nistelrooy. Okay, so one of the great things about this pod is we don't have to be entirely topical. We don't have to follow the the daily zeitgeist. And and this last part of the discussion about City and Liverpool really came from Jamie Carragher and it came about two or three weeks ago now. But I'm just interested to hear what you guys have to say, really. Um, I want to represent exactly what Carragher said um, properly because sometimes things can get twisted or out of context, you take little snippets, etc. Carragher wrote that Liverpool versus Man City has become the greatest, most intense and highest quality rivalry in English football history. There's a uniqueness to it. And that is that this is the first time the two best teams in England are also the two best teams in the world, led by the two greatest coaches of their generation. Many will claim that the fixtures overseen by Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger at their peak were of similar quality and packed just as much of an emotional punch To me, the parallels run out of steam when applied to European competition. Even at the height of their Premier League power, when it was obvious if one club did not end the season champions, the other would. Could it be argued that United and Arsenal were the two best teams in Europe, ahead of Real Madrid, Juventus, AC Milan? No, United versus Arsenal was a generally domestic squabble. Now, Michael, I just felt straight away like you're someone I wanted to ask about this and that you're (laughs) someone who'd be able to weigh up all of the variables here. What do you think? Yeah, I think that the parameters that, that Carragher puts forward, it's difficult to disagree, particularly about being the best two teams in Europe. In Ar- Arsenal and Manchester United just weren't on that level when they were squabbling. I mean, Arsenal in particular, their European record the first few years under under Wenger was very poor. Um, it depends what you mean by rivalry, really. I mean, a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say that 
they don't like this rivalry as much because it doesn't feel like a rivalry. Like the teams get on quite well. The managers clearly have a lot of respect for each other. I think when people say rivalry, they actually want some some malice, some bitterness <laughs> between the two, which I just don't think is is really evident in terms of the teams and the managers. Maybe the supporters are slightly different. Um, but yeah, if we're talking from the parameters that the Carragher cites, yeah, they are, they are the best two. And they've been pretty much at this level since 2018, I would say. I mean, Liverpool didn't finish second in the league that year, but they did win the European Cup. Um, obviously, last year, Liverpool had a big drop-off because of defensive injuries. I think we can uh, forgive them that. So, yeah, it's been a pretty long-running thing now. And we shouldn't forget as well that, I mean, Chelsea won the European Cup last year. I mean, it's an incredible time for English football. This is a, a real a level of dominance that I'm not sure we've really seen before. I know Spain over the last 10 years has done very well in Europe. But, I mean, I went into this season thinking that probably the best four teams in Europe were Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City and Bayern Munich. Obviously, Bayern fell in the uh, the quarterfinals of the Champions League, as indeed did Chelsea. But yeah, I think there's so much quality in the Premier League at the moment. And a lot of that is because of those three managers. If we open it up to not just English football, but European football in general, and, and two teams competing for the biggest prizes, two teams being inarguably the best two teams in the world, which other matchups are on the podium here, Michael? Well, I think one we shouldn't forget too much about would be Chelsea against Manchester United in 2008. Uh, they obviously played the Champions League final against one another. I think they probably were the best two teams in Europe that year. They finished first and second in the league that year. It was a slightly strange situation because, um, you know, Avram Grant was in charge of Chelsea, who, who probably wasn't considered one of the uh, elite European managers. But I think that deserves some consideration. Um, I think back to Dortmund and uh, Bayern being in the Champions League final in 2013, I think there's a decent case that they were the best two, uh, two sides in Europe that season. Although, off the top of my head, I think there was about a 23-point difference between them in the league, so it wasn't really neck and neck like it is now. I think the, the other contender, the other, other obvious con- uh, contender would be involving Guardiola again, and that was Real against Barcelona in 2011 when they played, played each other four times in, I think, the space of 11 days. Mm. That sounds mad. Was it really 11 days? I think it was. Twice in the Champions League, once in the league and once in the cup final. And again, I think they were the best two teams in in Europe. They didn't face each other in the Champions League final because they met in the semi-final. But yeah, I think I would still just about go for that because I think, and this might be being a little bit harsh on some of the players that are involved in this fixture, but there was a real star quality about Real against Barcelona. Obviously, Messi versus Ronaldo. And then you had, at that point, uh, you know, Xavi and Iniesta and Messi had been the top three in the Ballon d'Or, for example. Not to mention some of the other players involved. Pepe. Let's mention Pepe. Well, let's, yeah, <laughs> you probably can't forget that. Um, so I, I would still go for that ahead of ahead of this rivalry. But this one, like I say, it has more longevity now than that one. That was two years when Mourinho and Guardiola were both wet, both there when it felt really intense. Um, whereas this one, yeah, feels a little bit. A little bit more sustainable. Certainly doesn't have the the needle, as you mentioned, either of the United Arsenal rivalry uh, or that Barcelona Real Madrid rivalry. It seems unlikely that anyone will stick a finger in the eye of of Pep Linders uh, in the Champions League final. That that all got pretty distasteful, didn't it? I mean, Mark, to to your tastes, does a rivalry need that, or are you pretty pleased that it doesn't have that? 
Yeah, I don't think it, it necessarily needs it. I think it depends what sort of fan you are, I suppose. I think it, it more reflects, for me, it reflects kind of more of the sign of the times that I don't think that you'll have that kind of raw emotion that you maybe saw with the United and Arsenal in years gone by. I think that the game has kind of become a little bit cleaner. You, you think of leaving one on someone in terms of a tackle. You can't really do that nowadays anyway in terms of, you know, you're more likely to get sent off as a consequence and it would just completely void the rest of the game. So I think that the the game itself has maybe become a bit more cleaner, which has led to then maybe the yeah the players becoming a bit nicer. I don't know; it's, <laughs> it's hard to tell. But for me, I think that the, the the needle might the needle that we refer to might grow a little bit if Liverpool and Manchester City play each other a little bit more. So I think that Liverpool and Chelsea in the the mid to to late two thousands was not really you consider as a as a rivalry, other than both sort of growing in in stature, but it became more competitive and it had a little bit more needle because similar to, to Real and Barca, they ended up playing each other an absurd amount each each season. It was like an average of like five or six games that they'd play against each other each season. Yeah. And for me, that two, kind two of... Legged, uh, two-legged Super Cup helped a bit. That, yeah, well, it? yeah, that <laughs> is mad. granted. That is true. But uh, it's one of those where I think familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that Manchester City and Liverpool have a lot of respect for each other. But aside from... Um, there was the Champions League game, of course, going back a couple of seasons. But aside from maybe that, I don't think there's been any other games outside of just league games mm. where they've come up against each other. So if they're playing each other in the semi-final of the FA Cup, potentially the final of the Champions League, that needle maybe will grow. I don't know. Just taking it back to uh, a focus on on the Premier League, uh, Michael. Now, that wasn't Carragher's point very specifically, but I was looking at which rivalries are this rivalries rivals and there's one there's one metric that i've created where this is still just not quite there and it's entirely cherry-picked to suit a narrative here but i just wanted to present it to you between 97 and 2003 six completed premier league seasons five of the six united and arsenal were the top two between 2005 and 2011 six completed seasons, five of the six where Manchester United and Chelsea were top two and, of course, had the Champions League final that you referenced in 2008 as well. I wonder if that one loses obvious marks just because Chelsea changed managers so much in that time. This will be only the third season in four that City and Liverpool finish in the top two. Of course, Manchester United taking second spot uh, last season. So on, on that front, if no others... Maybe it still does need a, a year or two to to cement itself in the hearts and minds of of the Premier League focus fan. Yeah, I I, I do understand that. I, I do understand what you mean. I think that is actually quite a um, quite an interesting metric you've come up with. There. Thank you. And I think I'm right in saying that um, the one exception to when Manchester United and Arsenal were the top two every year, Manchester United was still the second biggest team. I mean. I think they got one point from the last two games, which meant that Liverpool overtook them on the final day. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. And Arsenal won the title at Manchester United that season, which was obviously quite a big deal. So, yeah, that even within uh, even within that, the exception is uh, a little bit of an anomaly. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, I think in in the in the minds of a lot of people that Arsenal Man United rivalry will still be the the kind of most intense and the most enjoyable and. Yeah, lots of lots of big moments, but they certainly never clashed in European competition at that point, um, which uh, yeah might be the case this season. I think I think as well if we're thinking about does it need a, another year or two, 
if we think of it as a bit of a kind of a tug of war between the the two teams, I know that in the Manchester United example, they won three on the bounce, didn't they? In terms of those late nineties, was it that it almost needs a little bit more of a, a back and forth in terms of it being a a rivalry whereby essentially City have won three of the last four seasons in terms of the Premier League. Now, if that becomes four of the last five seasons by the end of this season, then it's still pretty dominant for Manchester City. And yes, they'll have a rival in Liverpool. But if Liverpool win, you know, at the end of this season, then it will be three, two in terms of titles. And it can be a bit, have a bit more of a back and forth to it. Whereas if it's okay, well, Liverpool are our rivals, but we've still won four of the last five, then it's, I don't know, it maybe isn't quite, the same in terms of that intensity of the the rivalry but maybe that's just me okay well let's see how we go that there, there might be another chapter written in the champions league final but there may not be because they have semi-finals to get through first and lastly michael it's quite a it's kind of landed right the the teams that they are playing uh, manchester city against real madrid and liverpool against vrl uh, you wrote in your piece that they're essentially up against the reverse of what they both faced in the last round. Yeah, I have to give credit to one of the editors, Alex, for that, who, who made that point that I included in the article. I don't like to go out of my way to <laughs> give editors credit, but I feel I should on this occasion. But yeah, I mean, he made a very good point, which I unashamedly stole, that, uh, yeah, City having uh, got through a very tight, bitty game against Atletico will probably enjoy a bit more of an open game against Real Madrid. Um, and yeah, Liverpool, obviously, back and forth against Benfica will have uh, probably have to be patient against a pretty defensive-minded and very resilient uh, Villarreal, who, of course, got through in uh, a bit of a smash-and-grab fashion, although entirely legitimately, I should say, against Bayern. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would have the English sides as, as quite strong favourites for those games. I guess the caveat is Real Madrid. I mean, I've constantly not thought that they would win the European Cup over the last decade, and they've done so, what, four times? Mm-hmm. And Unai Emery is a master of getting to finals. I mean, his, I know it's generally in the Europa League, but his, his record in that competition was just exceptional. Even with Arsenal, he got them to the finals course. So, yeah, they'll be, they'll be tough games. Certainly can't take anything for granted. But, I mean, I thought Liverpool and City were the best two teams at the start of the season and thought they would meet in the European Cup at some point in the final if they didn't meet each other beforehand. Um, and that still seems the situation for me. Fascinating. Well, thank you for for talking me through it, covering all bases in the Man City-Liverpool rivalry, the bonanza that we've had over the last two weeks. Uh, Thank you to Mark and Michael. They're writing such good stuff on the Athletic site at the moment, probably only bettered by the editing on site at the moment, which is incredible. Those editors... You know, I always go out of my way to praise them because I think they are sensational, performing at a very, very high level daily. Um, so much good stuff on there at the moment. Did you know that in League One on Easter Monday, there were there was an incident where two players went for a 50-50 and they both got sent off for dangerous play, uh, which is incredible. I'd never seen anything like it before. It was uh, reminiscent of the scene in Step Brothers where they're having a fight <laughs> and they knock each other out at the same time. <laughs> on the front lawn. Uh, Nancy Frostick has written a great piece about it and I would recommend that you go and read it because, yeah, unique, as far as I can tell, happening in in English football on on Easter Monday. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you can go to sign up and get an annual subscription. You'll pay just £1 a month for the first six of them and we recommend that you go and do that right away. As for us, well, we'll be back again next week, won't we? So make sure you tune in to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.